lasso. So we come to the third round of our meditative cultivation of compassion. Going to the deepest level, but I don't want to just stay there alone, but rather bring in the, the larger framework, all, all levels of suffering, and the aspiration to be free of all of them in this meditation. But as we go to the greatest depth, <coughs> this dimension of suffering, or of dukkha, that is ubiquitous, that's, that's caught up in conditioning. Of course, the conditioning is not any old kind of conditioning. Conditioning just means arises independence upon causes and conditions. That doesn't necessarily imply suffering, but specifically the conditioning of grasping. The phrasing in, in traditional Buddhist literature is o karasavane, nyewarelembe pumbonga, the five skandhas that are closely held, the closely held five skandhas of body and so forth, that we cleave to them, we hold onto them, we identify closely with them, we feel this is really I and this is really mine, and in so doing, in that one step, then we make ourselves vulnerable to all kinds of suffering. So grasping is really, really at the root. And so t today I was asked, oh, by the way, how do we get rid of grasping? And the answer to that is all of Dharma, all of Dharma. But to take this not as a, how do you say, a metaphysical point, or an article of faith, or something like that. Take it a straight, radically empirical hypothesis. Is it true or not? No. Is grasping really at the root of our suffering? Now, first of all, of course, none of us wants to have, I don't think any of us idealize, general anesthesia as the culmination of the path. You just wouldn't feel anything, you know? That wouldn't be optimal. But could, even with respect to the body, even with respect to the body, could we experience pain, even excruciating pain? I mean, there are some very awful ways of dying. Bone cancer is one of them. If you have any choice, don't go for that one. It's an awful way to die. And then we can just praise and thank the medical profession that we have morphine and they know how to administer it in proper doses. But even a very, very painful death like that or other situations, injury and so forth, where intense pain arises, it's going to arise. That's what a healthy body does when it's injured or it's diseased. It responds with pain. But can even that be experienced in a radically different way? And of course, the Buddhist answer, which is very, well, the Hindus share this, the Buddhists share this, others, well, that would be a big story. But keeping to Buddhism, the answer is yes. And it has to do with releasing the grasping that we're simply present with, aware of, but without the identification. But then to turn this into, again, a rad rather than thinking, okay, that's what Buddhists say, they say that it's possible when you're an arhat too, and then we've just gone off into hypothetical land. Let's come back to our own experience, and very briefly, I want to be, again, as concise as I can, look at the, what I would call the microcosm, the minicosm, and the macrocosm. And that is the microcosm, the, the littlest one, the little kind of microcosm of samsara, is every, every time, every single time we get caught up in OCDD every single time. It arises when we're unaware, so we can't identify exactly when that little tiny samsara began. Once we're in it, we're deluded, we're sucked up. Once we're in it, we're in a little kind of a, a microcosm world, caught up in that thought, right? It's completely compulsive, so it's saturated by desire and clinging. Even if it's anger, it's still clinging and attachment with a negative ambience to it. And 
psychological studies have shown, they, they don't call this OCDD, they call it rumination, that about 80%, statistically speaking, 80% of rumination uh, is unpleasant. It's explicitly blatant suffering. It doesn't feel good. It's anxious, it's fearful, it's unhappy, it's depressed, what have you. And so that's a character, well, why shouldn't it be? It's deluded, it's compulsive, and it's obsessive. Why should it be happy? You know? But to see again whether this is true or not, and to see whether the sheer event, the sheer emergence of thoughts, mental images, memories, and so forth, whether that already requires us to experience dukkha, or whether the dukkha element is actually triggered and enabled by grasping. Well, of course, that's what we've been doing for the last three days in the morning, at least one session every day, settling the mind into natural state and see what's it like for the obsessive thoughts to arise and be orphaned, to be not owned, to be not identified with, to be not snared or caught up in a network of grasping and finding through our own experience they're just configurations of space arising in space with no clout, no ability to harm. So seeing for ourselves that we really can suffer a lot less, let alone endpoint, no suffering at all. We can suffer a lot less in eight weeks. We can suffer a lot less by reducing grasping. If the mind can be calmed, all the better. But even when it's not calmed and the OCDD is arising, well, just let it be obsessive but not compulsive and delusional. And then you're just seeing a cascading waterfall of garbage. But you don't have to eat it. That's the great freedom Buddhism offers quickly. You know, soon, eventually that will dry up, but that may take a while. So there's a little microcosm, a little microcosm. Now, uh, I was, uh, one of my speakers, uh, teachers spoke to me, and I speak only metaphorically here, but I have, really, I'm an old geezer, and I've received so many wonderful teachings. 25 years ago, a, a wonderful Galupa Lama by the name of Tadarambache said something that's lingered in my mind ever since, and that he says, before you try to silence thoughts, I'll say it again, before you try to silence thoughts, cultivate good ones. Right? Cultivate good ones. Right? So before you try to clean out the neighborhood, before you try to clean out the neighborhood, cultivate nice neighbors. Right? I mean, it's your, your immediate neighborhood is your own mind. And that's why, of course, we are actively cultivating the four immeasurables so that our neighborhood is nicely populated. Okay? And then go ahead and go non-conceptual, as we do in every single practice, just about every single one, of our group practices here, we end where? Coming right into awareness, silent, quiet, but after cultivating a benevolent neighborhood. So there's that. So this is a point where I think Buddhism has a lot to offer, because in mindfulness, as it's now been absorbed into modern psychology, there's such a strong emphasis on being non-judgmental, to the point of, I think, being a little bit cuckoo, um, as if one is really giving up discernment. I mean, I've read the bare mindfulness, B-A-E-R, mindfulness scale, and I must say I have very, very profound qualms about its whole section on being not judgmental, because it looks, it looks to me like a complete abandonment of any kind of good sense or discernment of recognizing wholesome and unwholesome and recognizing these are to be cultivated and these are not to be cultivated. It's just, oh, I will not judge myself. I will not judge myself. I will not judge myself. No matter what... The issue is not about judging yourself, silly. It's about having discerning wisdom of recognizing which mental events are wholesome, which unwholesome, which afflictive, which unafflictive, and maybe it would be a good idea to cultivate the unafflictive, the benevolent, and gradually release and dispel, counteract, remedy the unwholesome, 
So that's really part of balance practice, is that we're not simply aware of whatever is coming up with bare attention, being, you know, going way overboard and being not judgmental. How about having discerning judgment? That would be a nice, refreshing change. And so there's the little microcosm. The minicosm, a little bit larger, right? Minicosm is every non-lucid dream. Whenever you find yourself in a non-lucid dream, you've just become lucid. In other words, by the time you know that it was a non-lucid dream, you're remembering the previous moment when, oh, a moment ago I was non-lucid. But then if you try to think back, exactly when did this little mini-cosm begin? This little mini-cosm of samsara. When was the beginning of samsara and who did it to me? When did this non-lucid dream begin? Can you ever remember exactly when your non-lucid dream began? You remember when, when the lucidity began. I do. I've had lucid dreams. Boy, you remember when they... What catalyzing, really clearly, right? But when did the non-lucid part begin? Well, I don't know. I was deluded. I was ignorant. So the little samsaras don't have a beginning that we can identify experientially. Why? Because we are ignorant and deluded. And if you're ignorant and deluded, then you don't know what's happening, which means you don't know when it starts. So as, as psychologists have found about 80% of rumination without active cultivation of wholesome thoughts, which is not a strong point of modern psychology, that just as there is an 80% 80 you know, negative ambience to rumination, about 80% of non-lucid dreams are unpleasant, anxious, driven, and so forth, unhappy, depressed. So no surprise there, as it is during the daytime, why shouldn't exactly the same thing occur during the nighttime? And so there it is. And why is it, why are they unhappy? Well, because of grasping. And the grasping is that exactly which makes them non-lucid. We are grasping onto this, it's really happening, reifying subject, reifying object, and making ourselves vulnerable to all kinds of misery, sometimes real intense misery, in a dream which is completely self-inflicted. We may have to we'll take a whip and beat ourselves because nobody else is doing it to us, right? It's the mind punishing itself and the, that which facilitates or enables the punishment is grasping reification of self, other, and the whole situation, and getting caught up in a whole network of hopes and fears, cravings and aversions. So on the same theme of cultivate wholesome thoughts before trying to get rid of them, especially in the Galupa tradition I've heard this, but it's just good solid Buddha Dhamma, and that is there are multiple ways of falling asleep that can be very meaningful. One of them is mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness. But another one is for however many minutes, 5, 15, 20, 30 minutes before falling asleep, cultivate really benevolent thoughts. Have a 20-minute session on loving kindness or devotional practices, taking refuge, bodhicitta, anything to really cultivate really wholesome, wholesome quality of mind, virtuous quality of mind, and then go to sleep. And then take it as an experiment. How does that influence the dreams you have after that? Okay? So, a sign of a Dharma practitioner is that even when, that is the sign, indicator, we want signs of progress, right? How do you know whether your practice is working? It shouldn't just all be faith-based. It needs to be a balance of faith and intelligence, right? So how do you know whether your practice is working? Well, one indicator, in addition to the obvious ones that we've discussed in shamatha, is that when you do fall into OCDD, they're not that bad. It's just kind of like, 
bla 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 you know not really disturbing I mean kind of like meandering chatterbox okay but can I not too bad and another indicator is you'll see over time the, the dreams even if they're not lucid kind of cool not bad a little vacation I was off there and I went there six vacations somebody recently had ten vacations in one night here just a few nights ago pretty impressive this person really wanted out of here badly <laughs> anywhere but here and so the dreams themselves become sweeter, even though they're non-lucid, even though they're delusional. Well, it's a, it's a happy delusion. Not, a, not so much, you know, doesn't have such a bite to it. So, microcosm of samsara, can't recognize its beginning, but overall, dukkha. The mini-cosm, every non-lucid dream. The macrocosm, right now. Waking life, samsara, birth, aging, sickness, and death. And how much, if we just confine ourselves to the human realm, and I'm very well aware as a Buddhist that that is a very specific sliver of the whole large panoramic range of sentient beings, but just within the human population and just on our planet. Because the Buddhists, Buddhists actually, there are human beings scattered all over the place, not just on planet Earth. That's an interesting hypothesis. We'll see whether that's true. Maybe. It'd be very interesting to find out. But, just, but here we are, what we know about. Here's a planet with about 7 billion on, on the planet. And maybe it's not wild conjecture to imagine that most of us are not enlightened, that we really are samsaric. And so I just checked a little bit of data, just like one minute research before coming here. 50% 50, 50 of the world population right now lives on $2.50 a day or less. Two fifty a day. A lot of them... Oh, 30%, something like that, $1 or less. That's today. That's kind of tough. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're all miserable. I've lived in poor countries. I've lived with refugees. When I lived in the monastery in Dharamsala, we lived... I didn't live on much more than the other monks. There were 30 of us, and our monthly stipend from the, from the Tibetan government in exile, which is a refugee government, back there in 1973, was 100 rupees a month. It's twelve dollars a month. Living in twelve dollars a month, and I, being a Westerner and having a bit of money, I think I lived in maybe sixteen, seventeen dollars a month. And during that first year that I was there, two of the monks died, out of thirty. Two died. I almost died, really close. The other Westerner di uh, didn't die, but went home with really bad hepatitis. Another one also went home, really bad hepatitis. So, even though that was voluntary, nevertheless, I know a little bit about that from the inside. It would, but I know it's a radical difference to be there voluntarily, rather than just living on a dollar a day or less. So there it is. There's the human population. No straight correlation between affluence and happiness. Nevertheless, 250 a day is pretty skimpy, pretty pretty difficult. It would really keep one's, what do you say, nose to the grindstone? That is, I would imagine if, if you're living on that much, you'll be really preoccupied by tomorrow's $2.50. You're not going to have a whole lot of time to throttle back and say, ah, oh, wonderful to lead, have a life of leisure and opportunity. Pretty difficult. So grasping being the key, 
and in the midst of this life as well, cultivating a benevolent way of life, so that, and of course, some of the poorest people I've known, really poor, voluntarily, but nevertheless really poor, were yogis. The yogis up in the mountains, they're regular. They, they also, it was only about a dozen of them, but these yogis up where I lived back in the early 70s, way up in the mountain, no, actually 1980, 81, those yogis, they, they also got, they were on payroll from the Tibetan government in exile. 100 rupees a month. 100 rupees a month. And they're actually <laughs> some of the happiest people I've ever met. But it was all voluntary, and it was all, they were there to practice Dharma, and magnificently happy. I mean, really, a tremendous sense of eudaimonia, which is just common among that group. So there it is. So just coming back to the simple point, and here's where I'll stop, we'll go right to the meditation. But recalling, recalling the immediate catalyst, who can remind me? What is the catalyst that really arouses, almost like having a pilot, a pilot light on a stove, and then the little, and then the little spark that arouses it goes, and goes full flame? But you need a little catalyst to make it go full flame, right? We all have the seeds of compassion within us. Nobody got left out, right? But what is the catalyst that makes the flame of compassion go like that, and really fill your heart and mind? What's the catalyst? But it just is the oh, fruition. That could just make me depressed. Close. Caring, I can care, yeah, but I just care about myself. Close, but no bullseye. Couldn't hear. That would certainly be, yeah, that, it wouldn't be the phrasing I was looking I'm fishing. I wasn't fishing for those words, but that is, that is correct. Hope that you can help. Yeah, that certainly is not incorrect. Empathy, yeah, if you don't have empathy, compassion won't arise. That's, that's clear. And that's clear now neurophysiologically as well. That is, uh, especially one woman, Tanya Singer, has been doing some really first-rate neurophysiological studies of the correlates of empathy and compassion. Yeah, no empathy, no compassion, for sure. That's true. But it's not enough, because empathy alone can just make you really depressed. Right? Just really sad for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, good-hearted, but you can still be really sad. Just sad. You know, you're good-hearted, empathetic, and just weeping your eyes out. What's that? Vision, yeah. Well, this is exactly what David was, was referring to with hope, yeah. And so the technical answer, you'll see that you really have covered it. And so I'm just giving kind of like the classic answer for 1,500 years, which means it's been used for 1,500 years. That's a very well-used well definition. And that is, it is the perceiving, and it is certainly implies empathetic seeing, not just some standoff kind of thing, but perceiving the suffering of others, seeing that they are helpless, that they're not just going to taking care of it. You know, if you see somebody who's just fallen down and they're just picking themselves right up, you don't really feel compassion. You say, oh, good for you, carry on. You know? But if you see somebody suffering, you see they're helpless, but, you, but then, this point, you see they are helpless, but there is hope. There is hope. And not just generically, but you feel that hope, that aspiration. Those together, it's kind of like cooking a little muffin or something. You get those ingredients together, and then compassion comes. Right? 
So it's attending closely, but seeing number one is the heart open and attending closely, making real the suffering of others. And are they totally on top of it? You know? Like a person who's debt, who's in debt, but like England right now is deeply in debt, but they're reorganizing their whole you know, economy, they're cutting back a little. So it's going to be a lot of, it's a lot of, it's difficult. But really, it appears, and man, am I not an economist, but it appears like they're taking the necessary measurements to, me measures to get their economy balanced again. They're certainly giving it a good shot. Whether they're using right strategy, I don't know. I'm not an economist. But maybe it's not even a good example. Here's, but here's just generically. If you see somebody in a difficult situation, and they're on top of it, you know, they're just dealing with it, and they're getting themselves out of it, then you just, it's more like mudita. Mudita, you know, well, you're in a difficult situation, but good, carry on. More power to you, mate. You know, that's good. But it's not compassion, it's like, good. But when you see they are not, they're still floundering, but there is hope, that's when compassion really arises. So, it's recognizing, attending to the world of actuality, but it's also going beyond that to the world of possibility, aspiring for that, and there we have it. So when that, everything I just said, pertains to oneself, that's called renunciation. That's called developing authentic motivation to free oneself from samsara. And when it extends to others, we call it compassion. So on this point, and this will be the last point, Grasping is said to be utterly central, the root cause of suffering at the deepest level. It's because of grasping at this deepest level that makes us fundamentally vulnerable to suffering that it manifests as attachment and craving for the bounties of the desire realm. And then we have the suffering of change. But if we didn't have the root grasping, that kind of craving and attachment wouldn't arise. We have no root. And then out of the craving and attachment for the desire realm, then comes, because of that, comes all of the manifest suffering of all kinds that we experience in this desire realm. All of it. Physical anguish, mental anguish, and so forth and so on. So we're going right to the root. So there are two strategies, and we're applying both of them. I mean, I, I really must say, I, I stand in awe of these practices that I, that I have the honor and the privilege of sharing with you. I really do. Uh, they seem so si simple. Well, do a bit of shamatha and do four measurables. Sound good? Okay, let's do that. Think, man, as you know, I myself am exploring these more deeply, I think, this is really amazing. No wonder His Holiness told me to teach this again. These are really good. And that is, on the one hand, we're coming in cognitively, we're coming in with the sword of wisdom, even by way of shamatha. It's not pre-wisdom. It can really be an expression of wisdom to come in and cut grasping right at the root. And it starts with, all right, go into the infirmary and relax. Breathe out. What are you doing? You're releasing grasping. Right? And then you know all the stages after that. Abdominal breathing, nostrils, settling the mind, awareness of awareness. What is that except for a whole trajectory of on a subtle and subtle level releasing grasping until your coarse mind just dissolves into the substrate consciousness and you've now, you're out of blatant suffering. You're out of the suffering of change. You're really relatively free, very nicely free for a while. And so, there's one strategy coming in and just coming in there and releasing, releasing, releasing grasping, like coming into a garden and pulling out all the weeds. 
but coming within with the eyes of wisdom, coming in and really explicitly, firsthand, up close and personal, releasing, grasping. And you've all been working at it. And you know it's difficult. But as my sense is, I think you all have kind of gotten it from your own experience. This is really worthwhile. It's not worthwhile just because Buddha said so. It's not because I'm charismatic or not. It's worthwhile because you know it, right? You're really doing something real, something that's significant, regardless of whatever you believe, a worldview, and religious, not religious. This is real. So on the one hand, that's one strategy. <coughs> Where we're coming right into the nucleus of grasping and then clearing out. And then when these, in the afternoons, then we're coming out and we're, we begin with ourselves, but then we attend outwards, and we attend outwards and outwards and outwards, and we're attending and we're making real, we're expanding the field of caring. And in that, it is a benevolent, subtle form of grasping, but it's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, such that in that, the grasping to the self, just by practicing loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, the grasping to, the, to oneself may not explicitly get diminished. But it's now like taking one goldfish in a goldfish bowl, and you look into this little goldfish bowl, and say, wow, that's a big goldfish. He, he, turns, he swims around and creates waves. And now put that same goldfish in the ocean. The goldfish is the same size. The container is a lot larger a lot less suffering in terms of what happens to the one goldfish. A larger volume. We're attending big. We're attending to those around us. And we suffer much, 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 much less relative to what happens to the one goldfish. Because there are many fishies in the sea. Right? So it's really a wonderful strategy. And so complementary from the heart, from the mind, wisdom and compassion coming together to relieve ourselves and others from suffering and the true causes of suffering. So I must say, just the awareness of that, just the awareness of what I just said, arouses a sense of eudaimonia. Doesn't it? To be able to do that even for five minutes, well, that was meaningful. No matter what, to do that for five minutes, that was meaningful. So, let's practice.
two ways of cultivating compassion. Cultivating it meditatively and acting compassionately. In all of our practice, to the best, to the best of our ability, let's practice compassionately, gently, lovingly. First of all, towards ourselves, and then we extend this to others. So gently and kindly, settle your body in its own natural state and your respiration in its own natural rhythm. For a little while, calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing.
And now as you move into the more active mode, creative, imaginative, bring to mind the range of suffering, physical and mental, from which you would love to be free, to which you are vulnerable, and for which the possibility of freedom is there. Arouse this impulse of caring for yourself and with each in-breath. Arouse the yearning, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And practice as you've done before. Imagine being free.
expand the field of your awareness and let your attention rove. Attending first to individuals or groups suffering from blatant suffering, or at least for the time being are not able to help themselves, but for whom there is indeed hope, the possibility of freedom, and practice as before. like a butterfly or a hummingbird going from flower to flower. Let your attention move. and attend to those who are subject to the suffering of change. And practice as before.
attend to those all sentient beings, any sentient being, who is subject to this deepest dimension of dukkha, directly related to grasping. In every episode of rumination, every non-lucid dream, every life in which we grasp onto I and mine and reify the bifurcation of subject and object, I and thou, and practice as before. Focus intently on the real possibility of freedom from all these three dimensions of suffering, simply by leading a wholesome way of life, non-violent, benevolent. How much suffering would be alleviated for oneself and others?
simply by tapping into our own birthright, the blissful, luminous, non-conceptual dimension of our own awareness. How much suffering is alleviated? by directly realizing our own nature, the deepest dimension of our awareness, primordially pure, pristine awareness, the one taste of the whole of samsara and nirvana, how much suffering is dispelled. So arouse, if you will, the aspiration. Why couldn't all sentient beings, each sentient being, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? May we be free. May I free us. Free us all. And may I be blessed enable me to be to do so then release all appearances and rest in the nature of your own awareness
en ascent. It really strikes me that there is something a little bit Cartesian, in a very unusual sense, Cartesian, about the approach we're taking here with the modes of shamatha and the four measurables. Because a great passion for this very devout Christian, Descartes, was to be able to envision the world, to cultivate and embrace a way of viewing reality that was based fundamentally and based and rooted in an assertion that was indubitable, that he simply could not doubt, that was a bedrock that would be immutable. This I cannot doubt, and then try to build from there. He was a great mathematician, and that's kind of a mathematical approach. Take an axiom that you know to be true, and then develop from there. I don't think he found it, but it was a valiant effort. But for Dharma, it really strikes me this is quite Cartesian in that sense. I mean, I just can't see how I can doubt. I won't try to speak for other people, but the value of developing the core themes of shamatha, I, I just can't wrap my mind around thinking, this is why these are really stupid. And it comes with the same for the four measurables. You know, well, that, that third one, eh, don't like, the, you know, I, I, I just don't see how I can wrap my mind around see, seeing them as anything other than good. So if we can start with a total confidence, freedom from uncertainty, this is true and this is good. And we'll see where it takes us. That strikes me as being pretty, pretty sound, meaningful. So, I'd like to now shift to something utterly prosaic, but all of this is, we try to weave into something practical, a very helpful suggestion, and that is, um, there is a medical condition, physiological condition, that I've never experienced, and therefore I don't know anything about it first person, and that is called acid reflux. Acid reflux, correct? Yeah. Um, a number of, it seems to be genetic, because I've heard about it in a number of cases. I know, again, very little about it, and I have no experience. This is why it hasn't cropped up before, because I tend to teach out of experience, or at least within that general ballpark. Um, it seems to be genetic. It seems to run in families. And if one has even any proclivity for it, then one wants to be especially, uh, how do you say, cautious, very attentive to using the supine position. I don't have it. I use the supine position a lot. I've never seen any downside at all. I've taught it a lot. For most people that I've taught it, no downside. After a while, they just want to have another posture. But their knees don't blow out. Their back doesn't get painful. They don't have, you know, there's a lot of things that don't happen. And uh, if they can simply overcome dullness, then it's really great. And especially for people who have scoliosis, it can be a godsend. Because how, you know, if you've got a scoliosis, just how long can you sit before you're really uncomfortable? The answer is not very long. Does that mean, well, too bad you have to wait for the next body to become a yogi? <laughs> well, I hope not, you know. So but, acid, so, but acid reflux. Here's the advice I have from the, indirectly from the medical tra uh, uh, tradition, medical profession, and that is generically, not just for people with acid uh, reflux. Um, that, what I've been told, is for at least a half an hour after eating, don't lie down. Because you want to be vertical so that the juices can flow down where they should be and little valves close where they should close and the, and, and the stomach digests the food properly. So walk if you like, sit up if you like, stand, study, whatever, but supine position, not a good idea. Just generally, that's so I've been told. Um, and that's from people who know so much more about it than I do that I will take refuge in 
their knowledge. We do it all the time, and I'm doing it right now. Um, I've heard that if one wants to err on the side of caution, you might even, and especially if you're prone to acid reflux, maybe even two hours, correct? Maybe even two hours after a meal, not going supine. Now, you can be on an incline. That's where you can use our big fat pillows, you know, or you can sit in a comfortable chair, or you can do walking meditation or whatever, but at least an incline for two hours. If you're at all prone to acid reflux, incline, keep the juices, let, let gravity do its work and not just pull all the, gravity, all, all the juices down to your backbone, right? So, word to the wise, and one other piece I've heard, um, and that is good idea not to drink, not to take fluids for one hour after meal, and that's especially if you're prone to acid reflux, I believe. Because yeah. old wisdom, like in the Indian Ayurvedic tradition, Tibetan tradition and so forth, say something like, what is it, maybe one quarter of the volume you take in should be fluid to kind of like, you know, get things mixed up a bit and, and enhance the digestion. Um, but, that's, but that's normal. So actually, this is quite important. So if you are prone to that, genetically prone to it, a parent or what have you has it, you might want to really attend to this because I, I must say, I, I, do, I am really passionately concerned that people are not harmed but I'm what, with what I'm sharing with you. Uh, I would really want to stop teaching. I would stop teaching if I saw that what I was teaching was army people. I, I wouldn't want to teach anymore, period. So this is a really high priority for me, okay? So, there's that. Good. All right, let's see what our daily mail is. Oh yes, uh, here is a suggestion. Um, there could be something like a forum, um, <laughs> and then a really bad suggestion, with me as a supervisor. Whenever I see, you remember, remember, what was it, Gilligan's Island for those old geezers and the beatnik? Whenever, remember what he would do when he hear the word W-O-R-K? Work! <laughs> you know, he'd freak out. That's me. I say, me supervisor? Work! <laughs> you know? oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no more, no more work. So, um, what, what was his name, that old beatnik? Maynard. G. Maynard. Maynard G. Kreb. Thank you, thank you, geezer, geezer to geezer. We're the same generation. <laughs> Yo, and his his neurons haven't burned off. Not bad, but that was a long time ago. Okay, in any case, here's something I'm nixing because it, it, because it implies. And that is, I would be supervisor so that there are not weird or harmful advices. Um, and that is, so, so a forum, and this could be a bulletin board, it can be, especially when we're finished here in, the, in Phuket, uh, it could be obviously a website. Uh, Alma has already created a website where there can be dialogue, conversation, blogging among yogis. But where yogis can share their own, it, this is called peer counseling, sharing your own wisdom, your experience about issues like uh, health, Diet, medical issues, exercise, really, really good. This is what I've been envisioning for a long time in terms of an international shamatha project, is that it's not just top-down, the teachers telling the students what, uh, telling them what to do, advising them, trying to give the best counsel possible, but also the students sharing their own, you know, grassroots insights, experiences, practical things, exactly like diet, medical issues, exercise, duration of sessions, and so forth. Share your wisdom among each other, amongst yourselves, and then in terms of release, uh, retreat life, again, practical issues like sleep, schedule, limits, do's and don'ts. And in terms of practice, tips, timing sessions, combinations of practice, etc. I think it's a marvelous idea. 
I've actually described that on the, um, there's a shamata.org, describes the International Shamata Project, that I've not formally launched yet. I'm kind of just waiting, waiting, waiting to try to launch it at the best time, to contact about, oh, I don't know, 15 to 20 Buddhist teachers around the world and ask them whether they'd like to network. So the vision is there, wonderful endorsement by His Holiness Dalai Lama. Um, but yeah, I think this is a very good idea. For right now, you might want to keep, keep it probably pretty low-key, so you can just focus on your practice. Uh, but over time, it could be a really good idea. And in terms of, the, 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 I think there doesn't need to be a supervisor. I can imagine you know, having to break up quarrels. Um, and the quarrel that really came to my mind is somebody coming onto the uh, website and saying, all right, everybody, I, I'm the worst meditator of all of you. And then another person can, no, you're not. I'm definitely much worse. Well, no, and then another, no, 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 I'm absolutely. I, and then we can have a big quarrel, and I'd have to t untangle that, you know, and I, I don't want to do that. Okie dokie. Oh, Guru Yoga is a big, big topic. I think not right now. Let's focus on the practice that we're doing now. I will be speaking on that in Mexico, in Querétaro. Correct? Querétaro. Querétaro. Yes? Okay? Querétaro. Still not. But I'm a gringo. What do you expect? <laughs> in some city in Mexico, not too far from Mexico. City. Okay. I'll speak, I think, but right now, in this context, maybe you don't need. Uh, I'm here as a spiritual friend to try to help you in your practice. I think it's that simple. It's just that simple. Right? Oh, sometimes after long periods of intense along intense periods of crying or weeping out of sadness, disillusionment, or the sense of surrendering, or the sense of surrendering and letting dharma in makes me feel as if I was in objectless compassion, a shamatha. Or maybe it's just that I'm spaced out <laughs> due to being tired of crying. It's <laughs> a possibility too. Uh, the feeling is like just being. There is no thinking, it's just looking at space. Yeah, any advice? Um, there is something, I mean, first point is that sadness is not a mental affliction. So sadness is not a mental affliction. And consider the definition of klesha. Klesha sem A mental affliction is a mental process or function that disrupts the equilibrium of the mind, sets the mind into imbalance. It really afflicts the mind makes the mind ill. That's what delusion does. It makes the mind ill. It's toxic. It poisons the mind, right? And likewise for craving, hostility, and all the derivative mental afflictions. They don't just make you feel bad. They make you feel ill. And then the sadness is a symptom of the mental affliction. This is a fundamental difference between Buddhism and hedonism. Because hedonism says the symptom is bad. Whereas in Buddhism, oh, no, wait a minute. Some sadness is very cleansing. Sadness can be virtuous. Can't it? As you are attend, as you're cultivating compassion, and you attend to the to the the grief, the suffering of others, and you're doing this all in the context of cultivating compassion to ignite yourself to compassion and activity, manifesting in the world, going deeper into your practice, developing bodhicitta, and so forth. The empathy and the sadness you feel as you attend to others, the reality of others' difficulties. It's virtuous. It's leading you towards enlightenment. Right? And it feels bad. Tears flowing. And it's virtuous. This is a Mahayana position. 
And boy, do I embrace it. I really think it's profoundly true. Sadness may be ethically neutral. Like if I give myself my regular two scoops of ice cream, and then I drop it on the floor. <laughs> my conscience won't let me take another two scoops, because that's being a pig. <laughs> but I'm looking at my two scoops on the, on, on the floor, and I'm just not that desperate. <laughs> So that's ethically. <laughs> and I do that, you know. So that's sadness, but that's ethically neutral. There's sadness that is unwholesome, non-virtuous. So it can be all the three. What is described here, of course, I, I know I'm not clairvoyantly looking into this person's sadness. Disillusionment can be profoundly virtuous. Disillusionment with samsara, disillusionment with greed, craving, disillusionment with anger, and so forth. That's really virtuous. It's a opening of the portal of wisdom. And so such sadness, such including crying or weeping, can be very purifying, can be virtuous, cleansing, purging, and also exhausting. And so when it goes, then there just may be a quiet, as if you've just emptied a bucket of water, and now it's just empty. So yeah, it can get, give rise to, it can lead to a state of like objectless shamatha, certainly can. I can prime you for it. It can happen. And advice, here's my advice. When it arises, experiencing with, experience it with as little grasping as possible. Which means you're not suppressing it. And I, I want to give you all an open invitation. Because a number of you, when you've met with me privately, tears have flowed. And sometimes you've apologized. Please never do it again. There's never any need, never any need. It, it would be like walking into the room and breathing heavily and saying, I'm, I'm so sorry I'm breathing, you know, it's a habit. You know, no, no, as there's no need to apologize for breathing when you come to my room, should tears ever arise, there's never any need to apologize. Okay. So it happens. There's nothing to be embarrassed about no, and certainly nothing to apologize for. But as it arises, if you can, and I know it's difficult, but here, let's take on a challenge. When sadness, disillusionment arises, tears flow, for whatever reason, see if you can metaphorically let your spa the space of your awareness be larger than the space of the sadness. It's not dissociation. It's not pushing away. It's not cognitive fusion of being totally immersed in, caught up in the grip of the sadness. It is being loose, relaxed, open, and totally present with the sadness. But to the best of one's ability, without grasping. One, one can only imagine imagining how a Buddha would view the suffering of sentient beings. We can't imagine it. I mean, the Buddha's mind is inconceivable. And boy, do I take that literally. But one may try to imagine imagining it. And that is, on the one hand, a Buddha's awareness of our minds, of my mind, this crummy little sentient being here, a Buddha's awareness of my mind is non-dual. He's not over there in his pure land looking over yonder at that poor schmuck Alan, saying, boy, is he still screwed up. I feel really sorry for him. You know, there's not that kind of duality. He doesn't see me from afar. He, she, of course. No reason, no reason to put gender on it. But a Buddha's awareness of the plight of sentient beings is not dualistic. 
it's not like, thank goodness I'm in nirvana, but boy, I hope you guys get out quick. You know, it's not that. It's non-dual. The non-dual, right? Non-dual awareness of the suffering of sentient beings. If it's a non-dual awareness, how can a Buddha not be experiencing our suffering? If it's a non-dual awareness, come on, that's, that's pretty intimate, right? And yet a Buddha's not, as soon as a Buddha experiences compassion, which is all the, ti- all the time, a Buddha is not just simply then thrown right back into being a sentient being deluded in samsara. That's a Buddha. But what might, if we just try to imagine it, knowing that we'll fail, but maybe we can fail in a meaningful fashion, what might it be like for a Buddha to attend to somebody else's suffering, totally free of grasping, totally free of reification, heart totally open, experiencing it non-dually, but without being absorbed into it. And then do that for yourself. Do that for yourself. What I'm saying, of course, is something really obvious. Do your best to view your own suffering from the perspective of your own ritpa. Why not? It's there. It's yours. And how do you get there? By releasing grasping. So, I think that was all of them, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Jolly good, we still have some time, either to stay or to go. Any questions or comments, especially let's focus on practice, first of all. Anything coming up? We're about to face our contemplative Sabbath, but have nothing to do besides practice. the practice of compassion yes um, how can you work it uh, do it for example with a very bad person assassins uh, terrorists yeah how can you um, be more compassive with that people mm-hmm. very good very good yeah people who yeah terrorists will take take that as an example people who believe it's for the greater good because they think they're doing something good You've heard them interviewed, right? You've heard, you must have seen on television. Have you never heard a terrorist interviewed on television? Yeah, I think we all have. And I have. And every single time, they're sure they're doing something good. Right? This is good. It, it may hurt here and there, but if you see the big picture, which is their picture, this is something good. In other words, it's 100% justified. Right? This is a good thing. Children with amputated limbs, mothers, and so forth and so on. Little, bad, big, good. That's the, that's the idea. Well, of course, this is delusional. It's delusional. People don't decide to become delusional. They don't, from a, a space of non-delusion, decide, gee, let's be delusional. Neither within the context of a lifetime or from the Buddhist perspective, going from one lifetime to another. We never decide, oh, may I be born in a place where I'll be indoctrinated with delusional, vicious, dogmatic, malevolent beliefs. 
May I be born there? Because I'm sure it's going to be really fun. Nobody does that. We're propelled by karma. We're propelled, whether in this lifetime, and I'll just keep it within here, within this lifetime, where we're on firm ground, we know what we're talking about. People don't choose to become deluded. And so acts of terror stem from delusion. I think that's just, just, an objectively true statement. Objectively true statement. There are. It's, it's not just, the world is not just full of a whole bunch of opinions. There are some things that are true, and it's not a matter of opinion. And I think that's one of them. That this is delusional. To think that it's good for one's ideology, whether it's communism, remember the red, red this, red that back in the 60s? They were sure blowing up people would be really good to advance communism. In Italy, and Spain, Germany, and so forth. Oh, that was really going to work. And then people want to advance their religions, and the best way to really propagate your religion is to terrorize people. That'll work. That's really a great idea. So when see it, it's just like being in a nut house. These people are the delusional. And so if one looks at that level, sees through the outer husk, this is terribly malevolent behavior, and then sees what's behind it is malevolence. They want to harm. They want to terrorize. And then what's behind that? A clinging, a craving, a grasping to their own views as being the only right ones. And what's behind that? It's like, like Russian dolls. Okay, well, what's, what's the nucleus? What's the nucleus? What's behind that? Clinging to one's own views is like these are the only right ones. And everybody who doesn't agree, they should just be destroyed or converted, you know, with a bomb. So what's underlying that? The notion of what's underlying this clinging and grasping, to attachment to one's own views as being supreme? Ignorance and delusion. It always comes there. And so if we look there, it's, it would be like looking at a, um, like, like being a doctor and looking at a person displaying, like, what do they call it, uh, there are forms of psychosis that are very violent, so violent psychosis. Uh, people are really very dangerous, and that's why they're you know, isolated from everybody else. And they're not very likable people. It's, it's, you look at them, I think it'd be difficult to see anything obvious that's lovable. They're delusional, and they're harmful, they're really violent. right? But if one brings the eyes of a healer, a physician, a psychiatrist, right, who looks through that, and is looking there Looking, of course, there's this layer, this layer, this layer, this layer, and then there's someone, and this is where it goes. This is where I really go. Looking through the layers, there's a terrorist. Boy, I'm not a terrorist. We're really different. Here's a person who's orienting his life towards malevolence and violence. Boy, that's not me. Here's a person who thinks his views are totally right and supreme. Here's a person who's delusional. Oh, put her there, pard. Now I've gotten somebody just like me. We come down to the root delusion, grasping reification of I, me, mine, reification of subject and object, reification of my side, your side, our religion, your religion, my skin color, your skin color. But fundamental delusion, the reification of I and mine, reification of phenomena, subject, object, duality. You show me any terrorist, and I'll show you my brother. I'll show you the spinning image of me. I'll show you me. I'm the terrorist on that level. And I'm worthy of compassion. Right. So if we can look through the layers 
dissimilar, really dissimilar, quite dissimilar, uncomfortably, maybe a bit similar, me. There's the compassion. May you, like myself, be free of the root causes and all of the derivative manifestations. Right? And there it comes. I think we need to penetrate deeply enough that we see someone just like ourselves. And then if we do really do feel compassion for ourselves, when we screw up, we act in ways that are harmful, even if it's just sarcasm or abuse or contempt, let alone more manifest things like you know, lying and physical brutality. If we can see to the, through to the level, number one, that we really feel compassion for ourselves, even when we totally screw up. You know, we recognize always retrospectively. But if we feel not contempt for that thing, we, that, the thing, sure, the, the activity, I feel contempt for violence and active terrorism. And I'll feel contempt, I hope, I think probably even when I'm a Buddha, that there are acts that are contemptible. They're, they're, they're non-virtuous. They're contemptible. They're wrong. They're terrible. They're evil. I'm not going to develop a cozy, friendly relationship with those actions or with mental afflictions, as mental afflictions, right? But if one can really feel compassion for oneself, seeing, aha, when I did that, if I go back into my life and recognize, oh, there was a period I was doing something really, from my perspective now, really obviously, my goodness, how could I be so stupid? It was really unwholesome, looking back with somewhat clear eyes of wisdom. And then not looking back on that person with contempt, and seeing, oh, that person, Alan Wallace, at this age, that time, that occasion, that person doing something unwholesome, harmful. Why? Mental afflictions. Why? Deluded and helpless. Didn't even recognize it. Didn't have the good sense to recognize this is unwholesome, this should be stopped right now. And feeling compassion for that person and feeling, well, you long ago can't help you because that's water under the bridge. But this person now, should I ever have that tendency again, I'll recognize, hey, there's someone here looking after you. And you're not hel if you're helpless, I will help you. Right. Then compassion for self and other. Okay? Equal plane. Good. Very, very deep question. John. Uh, just this, just a quick comment. That didn't uh, Noah create a website like you were talking about? I just don't remember. And nobody here was in the spring retreat. And they did it even before that. Back yeah. Could well be. We've had a lot of... Yes, go ahead, Jennifer. Okay. So, so the answer was Noah put it up. Noah created and Noah uncreated. Um, so now Alma is created. And there is, there is a host here. And it's already... And what Alma created, just flashed it up in the last week or so, uh, was such, such a website, free one, uh, is already linked to shamata.org. Shamata.org. And that's kind of the mothership this. That's the mothership, the, the primary domain or URL for the International Shamata Project, which is, you know, to be launched. But it's there, it's waiting. 
to be a hub for networking among teachers, scientists, practitioners, and the large-scale model, I, I love being idealistic, why not, uh, is that over time, and hopefully not very long time, that this international, pro international shamatha project with multiple teachers, multiple students, multiple methods, multiple centers, multiple contemplative observatories, after we've had one, then we can think about multiple, uh, is that it would be inspired by and very loosely modeled after the Human Genome Project, where there's a shared vision of something that really should be done. The human genome should be mapped. There was no reason not to do it. Uh, there was the money for it, quite expensive, but very definitely, just unequivocally worth doing, if you, if you can, and that should be done, and it has been done. But the beauty of that, and it was really quite unusual in the history of recent science, was it was collaborative. It was thoroughly collaborative. No one country sprung ahead of the others and then got a Nobel Prize for it, right? And so it was just it was marvelously collaborative, and they shared in real time their findings, their data, and it was for a very simple reason. I mean, at least one of the simple reasons was that given the magnitude of the, of the project, it's very expensive, it would have been simply foolish to not do it this way because so much research would have been done redundantly and money wasted. And that's, that's where the rubber really hits the road, where it becomes very practical. So some very smart and benevolent and sensible people decided early on it's ridiculous. You know, most of science is very competitive. One lab gets the grant, another one didn't get it. They get the Nobel Prize, you didn't. So sorry, you know. Uh, the people working at CERN will get some prizes that the Americans working in America won't get, because they've now got the, the great, you know, the super collider. Uh, so that was, they put out the money, Americans didn't. But the human genome was collective, and likewise for maybe one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of the funds for the Human Genome Project, an international shamatha project, where people can do the same thing, and bring in scientists. So it's very much a collective, collaborative venture. That's the vision behind it. Okay. Yes. Nick, uh, go ahead, John. Could you give us the name of the, the uh, Rinpoche that you mentioned that was going to be giving some teachings in the Bay Area? Yes, Yang Tang Rinpoche, yeah. Okay. Yang Tang. It's Y-A-N-G. T-H-A-N-G, Yang Tang, Yang Tang Rinpoche, yeah. And he may be there for a couple of months, I think two or three months, because this Rinchen Debsu, this series of empowerments he's giving, is not short. And my understanding is uh, that he'll not only give, be giving this, which is a major commitment, I mean, it's, it's like coming here for eight weeks, um, but also some shorter teachings where people obviously simply cannot take off two or three months to everyday teachings. So he's a marvelous Lama, really, absolutely authentic. Wonderful Lama. Nicola. Um, I have uh, two questions. One is a very short one. It's just a follow-up on, on your uh, answering the sadness question. Yes. And you mentioned that there is some sadness that's unwholesome. Yes. So I was wondering if you could just briefly give a few examples. Oh, sure. The most obvious one is schadenfreude. schadenfreude. In German, schadenfreude. Taking delight in the misery of others. But that's not sadness on your side. Oh, it's, it's uh, schadenfreude? Ah, oh, it, it is sadness. Ah, oh, this, 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 yeah. This person, I, I, was hoping that, I was hoping to win a prize. This person got it. I can't stand it. He got it. He didn't deserve it. I wish he, I don't even like him. That's sadness. One can even cry. Oh. at somebody else's joy, their success. Okay, so that's schadenfreude. Um, 
and there are many others, that is, when, whenever, put it this way, it's really simple. And that is when the sadness is filtered with, almost like mixed with the seasoning of anger, or just mixed with the seasoning of cra self-centered craving and attachment, you know, then it's at least afflictive. There's a difference in Buddhism between afflictive and unwholesome, and it's not an insignificant difference. An afflictive mental state is simply one, um, the, the state, the, a mind state, which is dominated by one or more mental afflictions. It's afflictive, it's toxic, it will give rise to suffering. It's a disease of the mind. So that's that. But simply, for the mind simply to be dominated by a mental affliction does not necessarily mean that it's unwholesome in the sense of while it's arising, you are accruing negative, you're accumulating negative karma that will have karmic consequences. Not necessarily. Okay? So it's simply to be ill and to be, how do you say, acting out of illness are two different things. So when we speak, for example, of the ten non-virtues, for example, well, I'll just focus on two of them at the time being. Active avarice, really wanting really wanting somebody else's stuff, you know, avarice, craving, greed, and really intending, wanting to get it. It's a mental non-virtue, right? And then ill will, not just being angry, being irritated. Being irritated is not necessarily non-virtuous in the sense of, oh, now the comet clock is ticking and you're you know, going to go down to a lower realm as a result of that. You can be irritated that it's raining. No, oh, I wanted to go for a walk and now it's raining. Bummer. Crap. Yeah, I don't like rain, you know. Well, it's a mental affliction, but that doesn't mean it's propelling you to hell realm. You're just grumpy, right? <laughs> so there should be some. So the the clicker is this, because it's good. I think this type of precision is kind of a good idea. You know, when intention clicks in, intention. That's when the karma karma. If for anybody who wants to take Buddha seriously, Buddhism seriously, when intention clicks in, that's when karma really begins. And it's motivated, and negative karma, unwholesome, non-virtuous karma, is always, always, always influenced by, driven by, inspired by mental addictions. You'll never have an unwholesome karma or behavior without a mental affliction being behind there. And that's why, in terms of Carlos's question, you see something is over overtly, manifestly evil and loathsome, loathsome, contemptible. People will blow up children. That's contemptible behavior. And I chose my words carefully. The behavior is contemptible. It doesn't matter who did it. It's a Buddhist, an atheist, a Christian. It doesn't matter. The behavior is contemptible behavior. It should be an object of contempt. But the person who did it, from a Buddhist perspective, the person who engaged in such an act of terror is even more worthy of compassion than the person who is the victim. So you died in an act of terrorism. Well, you take a rebirth that rebirth will simply be the consequence of your own actions. Right? But you're inflicting acts of terrorism. Your rebirth will not... Uh, will be very difficult. So, so that distinction. This is why intention, it always comes so closely down to intention. You see the mind is afflicted, and then what does Shantideva say? And, this, and we'll end on this point. Shantideva, it's so good. It's so, it's so simple, so wise, and it's practical. What's not practical 
is when we see our minds getting dominated by mental afflictions and thinking, stop. And they say, screw you. I'm more powerful than you are. Shut that up. <laughs> I'm in charge here. So we can't just turn off mental afflictions because they arise, which could. And we just, then I would just hit the, I just keep my finger on the, on the stop button all the time, you know. It doesn't work that way. Mental afflictions come up because of causing conditions, and they just come up like getting the flu, and they happen. But Shantideva makes this point, and this is where introspection comes in. Introspection we're talking about here. Introspection. Monitoring the state of the mind. He said, with the power of introspection, he has a rather long chapter all about introspection. It's discerning, it's intelligent, it's wise, and it exercises good judgment. And this is why I do get bothered when I see the kind of the pop version of mindfulness throwing out introspection with its wisdom, its discernment, its good sense, its sound judgment, recognizing which mental states are wholesome and unwholesome, which are afflictive and unafflictive, as if it doesn't matter. This is an exercise in foolishness. Really, I think it's very sad. And, and to present that as Buddhism, then, is just perversion. That's, dis that's, dis that's, that's disgusting. That's not Buddhism. Never was Buddhism. So that bothers me a bit. That's not right behavior. So, what does Shantideva say? With your faculty of introspection, you see some mental afflictions come up and has captured your palace, captured, captured your mind. What does he say? As soon as you recognize that, Oh, mind is dominated by mental affliction. He says, stop. Stop what you're doing. Don't do anything. Don't act. Be like a piece of wood. Quarantine yourself. Quarantine yourself. You've just come down, to sw you've just come down with swine flu. Don't sneeze. Don't hug people. Don't cough. Don't go into public areas. Don't interact. Whatever you do in the world, it's going to be harmful. Engaging with others is going to be harmful. Breathing may be harmful. Quarantine yourself. You're contagious. This can really be virulent. And so when you see your mind has been dominated by mental affliction, and he gives a whole list, he, goes, he refer, returns to this verse after verse. If, if you're dominated by this, if you're dominated by this, he really hammers it in like a nail with many hammer strokes on top of it. Whenever you see your mind dominated by mental affliction, stop. It doesn't mean you can stop the mental affliction. Don't act. Don't act on it. Be aware of it. Remedy, it, remedy if, you, if, if you can. Apply love and kindness, compassion, whatever. But even if you can't remedy it, if it's really dominant, this is what we're doing is settling the mind in this natural state. Be aware of it without distraction, without grasping. And don't let it catalyze intention. Because that's that's when the real bad stuff starts to happen. Intention. Because intention is just one step away from manifesting in the world. And that's where all the misery, all, that's where all human created misery comes from. All of it. And that is a massive proportion of the suffering that human beings are, are experiencing. I can't tell what percentage, but it's large of suffering that human beings create for other human beings. It's very large. Where does it come from? Intention. And where does that come from? Mental afflictions. And so, nip it in the bud. When you see a mental affliction has arisen, stop. And wait until it passes. And after it's passed, then act. Even if it's a mental affliction in response to some grave injustice, 
something you know is terrible. Hey, this needs action. It's an act of racism, it's an act of brutality, or what have you. Sometimes, of course, we have to act quickly. Many times we don't, right? And so even where we see something, this is really unjust, this needs a response. Yes, it does, but not by people with afflicted minds. Because that's just treating poison with poison. So on rare occasions, we have to act immediately. If you see a, see, see a child being beaten, you don't, you don't wait and say, well, I'll wait until my mind's really peaceful. I mean, you have to, even if you're angry, sometimes you just have to act, right? But many times, many times it's not that way. And so Shantideva's advice is wait until it passes. The mind is restored to its equilibrium and then do whatever needs to be done. Hola, so. Enjoy your weekend. I'll see you around.